Welcome to Season 3 of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. And welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host, Ben Pronk. G'day, Ben. How are you, Tim? I'm pretty well. Good. We're recording in the office today. A little short introduction on an episode where the microphones were turned back on us to talk parenting. Yeah. Or is this one where we turned the microphone on them? Well, both of those things did happen with Jump Daddy and Dr. Tom from the Dad to Me podcast. Yeah, it was a cool episode. And I kind of really liked reflecting on my role as a son, but also my role as a father and picking their brains in terms of what they've learnt from their really cool uh, podcast journey. Yeah, their podcast takes uh, parents and their child and acts as a translation service, simply stated, doesn't it? We were a little bit different to their traditional um, episodes, but they ask us about growing up, being a product of a military family, military fathers, and then our experience as parents with our own kids on that little journey that we each have. Mm. Yeah, and via our experience as kids with our own parents, um, which also was a nice little bookend. And I, I sort of really reflected a lot during the episode, but also afterwards about how different it is, even in one generation. And um, I think it's really exciting how these discussions and things like um, the Dad to Me podcast, and um, we recently spoke at a Dad Mod event, a, a similar sort of group of of um, in both cases, generally fathers, but not exclusively, but certainly parents who are kind of all getting together and wondering how we can do this thing called raising kids a bit better. And special thanks to Jump Daddy and Dr. Tom. Uh, check out their Dad to Me podcast. They're about to enter into their next season. And without further ado, let's get on with the show. So welcome to Tim and Ben for a very special episode of Dad to Me. Tim and Ben from The Unforgiving 60. Uh, and before we dive into the questioning, Ben and Tim, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about The Unforgiving 60 and and how you sort of came to it? Tim just nodded to me, but that's unfair because it, it was his <laughs> idea, actually. Um, this is part of the – this is the summative test, see if Ben knows. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want my version? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so I, I came – kicking and screaming is probably too strong a, a, a sort of phrase, but, yeah, definitely Tim's idea um, as a way of exploring some ideas with people who we found interesting. We – and it's it's you know probably topical. We drew the the title "Unforgiving 60 from a, a Rudyard Kipling poem, "If," which talks about filling the unforgiving minute with sixty seconds uh, worth of distance run, which was actually one of my father's favourite poems, and he, he used to read it to my brother and I. So it's a nice little loop into to what we're going to talk about today. But really, we just wanted to talk to people who are doing interesting stuff. We'd met a few pretty extraordinary people in our travels, and I'd always been surprised at how ordinary they actually were, you know, and it's my sort of working thesis that these aren't superhuman folk, 
that do these things. They're just normal people like us. And so it was a, about trying to, to um, you know, un- understand what drove people to do things that were, were slightly out of the ordinary. Mm. And on the note of out of the ordinary, maybe that's a, a good spot to plant a bit of a flag of, of, of your guys' careers prior to strapping into the podcast game. We first met in uniform. So both Tim and I were in the military together and in particular in the Special Air Service Regiment. So Tim was one of my early bosses there. Um, and so that that was really the start of our relationship. And it, it was a, an extraordinary career. Looking back on it, I think particularly the, the time frame we were in uh, that spanned deployments to sort of East Timor, um, for Tim Sierra Leone, Afghanistan, Iraq, shipboarding operations around around the country and, and uh, neighbouring seas. So there was a lot going on, um, you know, some really uh, amazing times and, and ultimately for me a very positive experience, but clearly there were some, some uh, uh, sort of tougher moments and, and clearly some organisationally challenging moments as well. But I feel, I feel very thankful for having been part of that and having learnt from that. Um, which I think has had a lot of bearing on me as a human, me as a man, me as a father. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I'm very thankful I've, I've come through in more or less one piece. Mm. And, yeah. and, we, and we started a business together three years ago, um, Metal Global, and we teach leadership, teamwork, resilience and crisis management. We have a strategic advisory services component and all of those things exist in this Venn diagram to deliver for our clients organisational excellence. So yeah, we we love having the podcast alongside that because it does give us some incredible inspiration for some of the things that we do in our client-facing work. Yeah, right. So you you've been you've really been able to trade on your experiences in in the army, right? So you you've both become these <clears throat> incredible experts in the field of crisis leadership, you know, resilience, this sort of thing. Uh, to turn the topic of conversation to our obsession of the father, <laughs> uh, what you know? What about those fields did you pick up from your own dads? You know, were, were those guys kind of resilient? Were they smooth operators under pressure? Yeah, my father was also in the military. He did thirty-five years in uniform um, and got out as a one-star general, and he was pretty stiff to be honest. I mean, I love my father. He loved the family back. There were periods of absences and maybe we'll circle back on that in a little while. Um, But we did live a very nomadic existence. I have one brother and on occasions that was quite lonely. I, I remember distinctly we'd been in Perth. My father had been the commanding officer of the SAS, so the senior officer. Um, and we were going to Canberra once again, another posting. You spend two to three years and then you move on. And I remember, you know, having a good hard cry as we drove across the Nullarbor to Canberra, just leaving this life behind that, you know, as a 9, 10, 11-year-old, I, I thought was, was the be-all and end-all. Great group of friends. I loved my school. I was into swimming and my cricket and, and, and football and thinking nothing can replicate that. But circling back to your point, in many ways you arrive at new destinations and the only thing you do have is family. And Dad was always a real rock in those moves to make sure that we were settled into new schools, new neighbourhoods, into you know new sporting ventures, into our academics. So yeah, we share a really close relationship. My father um, is 82 now. 
um, has had a period of illness, which has been interesting in itself as he recognises his own mortality. And in many ways, I recognise not just his, but mine. Um, and I, I think that there is a cascading effect on the way that you look at your own children in that. But yeah, we're, we're very close and um, we've had Steve Bidolf on the program, our um, podcast before, and I explained to Steve Bidolf that it was a book of his that changed fundamentally the relationship that I have with my father. Uh, manhood, I read it, Steve Bidolf was talking about you know, men, um, fathers, sons, grandfathers and, uh, and others thawing out. And he didn't understand in this book why, you know, fathers and sons, when they, you know, got above the age of six, didn't hug each other. And I remember hugging my father for the first time in, God, I don't know, 15 years. And he was stiff as a board, was the old general. (laughs) Get Um, off me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But but that completely changed it. Yeah, he did really try and shrug me off going, what's going on here? Are you going to give me some news that's going to be a little uncomfortable? But no, now we continue to to hug and, and, you know, we kiss each other. Um, hello and goodbye. Every time we see each other, it's it's really quite special. Wow! So the the wisdom of Steve Bidolf really uh, really changed your guys' relationship. That's that's beautiful to hear. Did you tell Steve when you had him on the podcast? Yeah, we did. Yeah, um, and he talks about men um, thawing out, and and I love that line. I think that there has been a bit of that, you know, from the baby boomers to where we are, and the relationship that fathers are now having with their children. I I, I do think that there's more obvious love. I'm not saying that my my father didn't love us. He absolutely did. But, um, you know, when you're in your teen years, we just didn't see the the level of affection that I think I now show my kids, as much as they hate it, by the way. But, you know, there's, there's a real demonstration of it. And and nearly a litmus test. My, my kids are 19, 17, 15, uh, boy, girl, girl. And my youngest one doesn't like the affection and um, it was a badge of courage in many ways, a validation of my love to my kids when uh, not too long ago she said, Dad, you tell us you love us too much and you hug and kiss us too much. <laughs> Which I the thought other was direction, yeah. Right. yeah. Too much PDA. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, well, th- thanks for that, Tim. That's really such an interesting insight. I know we're going to want to find out more about that, uh, that history of your, your own dad being in the military. What, what about you, Ben, you and your father? Yeah, well, um, very similar in that my dad was also in the military. He was a, a helicopter pilot in the army. And, um, you know, we had that same nomadic existence and the same sort of, I guess, principle as a rock, but almost polar opposites in terms of his levels of affection. He was he was like Tim is now. Um, <laughs> we And I do remember as, as kids, uh, my brother and I, so I've got a, a younger brother, um, saying, um, geez, it's embarrassing when dad, you know, cause it was always, if he'd have a couple of drinks, you know, and Jesus, I look back on the, the two alternative emotional responses to, to drunk dad and, and we got the really good <laughs> one cause it, it, he was always gushing about, you know, so proud of you. I love you so much and all. And mm. it's kind of funny cause it was just normal for us, but I guess it was probably abnormal at that time. And I'm, I'm not really sure why it was the case certainly he had an interesting childhood himself in that his mother was quite distant and in fact uh, didn't go to his uh, wedding because he married a catholic girl or anglican it was one of those kind of Uh, things yeah the old mixed marriage yeah and how weird does that sound now and and i think you know maybe in 20 years we're going to look back on on what we now consider a mixed marriage and think what you know that's crazy and and certainly 
um, awesome to see things like LGBTI rights come through and, and become much more. Um, in fact, I was having this conversation with my daughter just recently about uh, gay people and, and, you know, oh, is there any stigma at school? And she she just couldn't understand. What do you mean? Like, Yes, that's yeah, what we like to hear. Which is Beautiful. really cool. I, I digress, though. So, you know, dad probably had a bit of a, um, a, a distant mother and, and maybe that's why it manifested in, in such overt affection uh, towards us. But very... Um, very uh, sort of pragmatic guy. He was very good with his hands, very non-religious, probably because of that childhood, but the most Christian, small C Christian person that, that I've ever met. I can't remember him driving past someone broken down on the side of the road, and he'd always be that kind of person who'd sort of help out in that situation or, you know, pick up rubbish if he saw it. He, he was very, um, I think, altruistic in many ways, but also a product of his time, you know, still sort of that, that Aussie 70s kind of dude. Yeah. 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 Interesting. No, he sounds like a, a, a really, you know, a, a good, um, a, a nice example of a dad from that era, right? We, we do hear a lot of stories about uh, that generation of dad who are just kind of, yeah, very stiff. Um, but, <laughs> you know, uh, if, even if you need to get drunk to show your affection, that's uh, that's something. <laughs> it's the Australian way, isn't it's it? It's the Australian way. So, Tim, your dad, uh, as, as we're hearing here, is, is one of two dads concerned who, who served in the military. In your case, uh, for about 35 years, we understand. Did his commitment to that time in uniform attract you uh, to the vocation? And l- likewise, in terms of stepping out of it, do you recognise kind of echoes in, in, in his own way out of the military? Mm. It- you couldn't say no to that, but my father was always very firm that we needed to create our own paths. You know, it was our own journey. So he never once influenced my decision to join the military. In fact, what influenced my decision to join the military was the 1986 movie Top Gun. <laughs> where, the real where I thought, I'm going to go and be a fighter pilot. That's fantastic. And then uh, that transition to me joining the army and thinking I'd be a helicopter pilot. And then about six weeks into basic training, I got a scholarship to the Australian Defence Force Academy in the first six weeks as this common military training block. And I realised, nah, I'm going to be an infantry officer. So no, he he was always incredibly supportive. um, And I think no matter what first career I took or second career I took, he would have been there for me regardless. Um, But you couldn't dissociate and say no he didn't have an influence and and little things. So living in the SAS barracks as a family did at that time and running around amongst, you know, all of these guys doing counter-terrorist exercises, they were building this capability when I was a young fella. And so, you know, the neighbouring house would be seized by a terrorist group and then (laughs) the SAS assault force would be forming up in the 
you know, the, the sort of your front yard. It was just a tr- tremendous Can I have my experience. Tennis ball back. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, and and uh, you know, genuinely, quite often we'd have to evacuate the house because we'd be we'd be gassed out. Wow, we'd be wow. tear gas floating through the house, and we'd all, we'd all dart out and go somewhere else for a little while, yeah. then come back. So yeah, I think all of these wonderful little vignettes uh, definitely contributed to not just me wanting to join the military, but ultimately making the decision that beyond the infantry, I wanted to be in the SAS regiment. Mm. Interesting. I, I have to. I, I feel like uh, a memory is coming, jolting back to my brain like a dagger. In uh, my early twenties, I was a little bit lost. I dropped out of university. I think for the third time, I tried all sorts of different things. And yes, three different universities. Yeah, thanks yeah. for clarifying, <laughs> dickhead. Um, uh, and uh, I did go to the ADF recruiting station at Parramatta, and I remember sitting in the sort of waiting room, and you know, looking at the various you know written paraphernalia, the imagery on the walls, and thinking, yeah, okay, I could get into this. And then a recruiting officer came out and started peppering us, you know, potential uh, recruits with you know questions about what this particular piece of armament was on the walls and everyone else was like you know rattling off this uh, <laughs> initialist uh, initialisms you know blah 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 and I was just like I've made a terrible mistake <laughs> I just felt you know uh, fairly or not I felt that I was in a nest of gun nuts and <laughs> and uh, shortly after the interview after various you know calls to my home and many many emails trying to get me to come back I uh, I severed all ties <laughs> But, uh, you know, that's somebody coming from a completely, uh, from a family background uh, where where there wasn't any sort of military connection. So I guess my question is, was there any sort of culture shock from you going from a household where uh, I guess you guys both had a sense or thought as a child and as a teenager you had a sense of the military and what it was going to be all about to then actually being in basic training or then maybe in, in terms of shipping out and, and going on missions all around the world, was there a sense of culture shock or perhaps what, what really surprised you that you, you just didn't see coming down the barrel? I guess my story is a little different. My father joined the military relatively late in his mid-20s, so he'd put himself through university, he travelled a lot, and he um, was quite successful in terms of uh, his time in training and and you know his career and he credited a lot of that with the fact that he had had some life experience and so he was very um, insistent that we we have an air gap between one institution of secondary school and another institution of the military and so I, I actually took a gap year and did a lot of travel with him uh, around Australia and um, I, I think that was really important. My mum was was red hot on that as well. She didn't want just this this sort of programming. But to to come back to your question, there was an element of familiarity, and I think there was less culture shock for me hitting the Defence Force Academy. I'd done school cadets. I'd had exposure to what the military life was like a bit, and so it wasn't a complete um, you know over my head immersion like it was for some of my classmates. But I was actually surprised, and I think there is a common uh, misperception about uh, the the amount of discipline and the nature of the discipline in the military. Um, a lot of people do think that it is absolutely regimented from the the moment you get up to the the moment you go to sleep. And there's elements of that in the, in some of the training, you know. And there's 
all sorts of wonderful psychological indoctrination sort of reasons behind that. Mm -hmm. But by and large, there's actually a a real requirement for self-motivation and self-discipline once you're out of that pipeline. And so for me, I was quite surprised at how uh, much latitude you had uh, for, you know, doing your own thing. Um, I was also very surprised, and particularly when I got to the unit, at the amazing um, array of people. I mean, it's still a pretty homogenous sort of demographic, but there are people from all sorts of backgrounds, and you you find out one day that, you know, Jono's a concert pianist or that someone Hmm. used to be an actor or that, you know, there's a lot of different um, sort of backgrounds and interests. So I think for me I was surprised at how – you know that that level of diversity, um, but also the the level of latitude and and almost the lack of of rigidity in a lot of aspects of the military. Mm. Jump, Daddy, you were wrong to get out of it. Mm. This, yeah, this could exactly. have been. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it could have been a place. For and, you. And, and knowing knowing myself as somebody who does uh, benefit from the discipline of. Uh, regimented schedules and just generally a structure I probably would uh, yeah. I would own a home by now let's put it that way but anyway um, uh, for, for, for myself and our listeners I, I think something that could be an interesting distinction for you guys to draw if you could is is that you know even talking about Top Gun so much of our views of the military are entirely uh, informed or perhaps poisoned uh, by the mil- by the American uh, Hollywood perception of it uh what would you guys offer as some you know kind of clear distinctions in form or feel between you know the the constant uh, constant reminders of the of american military life that we see in the news that we see in movies that we read about in newspapers to the australian military tradition and reality i i mean i th- i think there's a massive distinction between the pop culture version of American military and the real version of American military. Mm. I, I feel privileged to have spent a year on exchange in the United States working with their uh, special operations. And, mm. you know, it's it's clearly chalk and cheese. I mean, any uh, sort of movie version is distilling um, stuff and glamorizing stuff and, and amping up stuff to, to form entertainment. Um, there's certainly elements of it. And maybe to dodge your question for a start, <laughs> there are some really cool um kind of movie moments that you have in in military careers, you know, roping out of helicopters onto the Treasury (laughs) Casino in Brisbane and, you know, doing all these sort of amazing things that you could only do in in the military that does Mm. feel like it straight out of a movie. So there's definitely some of that boys' own adventure stuff. Mm. But in reality, um, I think people would probably be surprised at how... Um, I guess mundane uh, a lot of soldiering is. You know, it is mm. not all roping out of helicopters and blowing stuff up and shooting targets and that sort of stuff. There's a ton of process. There's a ton of, um, you know, in barracks, a lot of the the raised, trained, sustained functions are just, you know, process of, of, of any other variety. And even on operations, um, that old cliche that, that war is 99% boredom and 1% terror, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on behind the scenes to get you out the gate um, and put you in the position where you, you're doing what you've been trained to do or doing what the mission demands. And so I think it's not as um, sort of action-packed. It's certainly not as far removed from a lot of other jobs in terms of what you're doing from day to day, particularly in a barracks environment. Um, so I think the parallels to, to civilian life are probably more profound than the, the differences in many cases. Mm. 
And staying inside the wire at the SAS regiment, uh, there's a group of men and women that are highly intelligent and highly motivated. I've told the story before of coming from an infantry battalion where, I mean, literally bailing my soldiers out from fighting police officers over the weekend and walking into the troop office of my SAS troop. And I thought it was a setup. We had guys reading the paper of the the financial review, looking at their stocks, talking about their housing portfolios, discussing geopolitical issues. So not just were they fit and tough, but they were smart and there was a lot of self-motivation. And the one thing about that high-performance team, it's probably the only high-performance team I'll ever get to work in and with, Um, The one thing that's forgotten, bringing it back to the theme of your podcast, is a lot of them are fathers. And Mm. the system doesn't love the families a whole lot. And I say that in the nicest possible way because needs must. And on a baseline, you're serving in the SAS regiment, you're going to be away six months Mm. of the year. And that's a start point. And it, it kind of, you know, trickles down from there. And the other challenge for families and, of course, you know, specifically for children is that a lot of the time you're deploying and you can't talk about what you're doing, where you're going. And even when uh, there are things that are known and knowable, like the family, know exactly where you are, mm. you can't talk about the specifics of that operation. So yeah. it's really quite challenging in the relationship between the professional soldier or professional military officer and the families and quite difficult for kids. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I, that was striking me when you were speaking earlier as well, Tim, that the the sort of condition, the default condition of silence of, of the father that, you know, that gave rise to this podcast is is sort of magnified with a military dad, right? Because there are so many things you can't talk about. You literally, you know, it's like you're not allowed to talk about it. Um, and there's there must be so many things you just, you feel like you don't want to burden your family with. You know, you want to main, maintain a little bit of separation and, and sort of keep that side of your life a bit safe. Yeah, I guess I guess my next question is, you know, um, your dad Tim, like you had a close relationship, but you, you know, there there were a lot of bits of his life that you didn't actually know about. You know, Mm. you you mentioned that he actually, you know, won a military cross at some point, and then you had no idea about that until you know, late, relatively late in your life. So yeah, did you did you find it hard to get stuff out of him at times? yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd tell this to my father's lovely face. I mean, he, he was a stoic old general and he didn't really talk about his work that much. And he won a military cross in Borneo um, on a ridgeline called the Gunong Raya um, in an ambush action where um, he laid and initiated this ambush and they captured some intelligence that was sort of vital to ongoing operations. And naturally, I knew he had a military cross because it was in the title of his name, you know, Brigadier R.G. Curtis AMMC. But I'd asked him a couple of times about the circumstances and he just didn't tell me. He was quite dismissive of it. Um, And peculiarly, I think he was out of the military and and I was rattling around in the old record collections and there were some cassette tapes. And one of them had a strange title. It was Brigadier R.G. Curtis AMMC addressed to a a women's group. 
And I thought, that's odd. Okay, why would Dad be talking to a women's group? And so I plugged it into the cassette deck, <laughs> and he was telling um, the story of you know leadership and family and and all of these parts of his life that maybe hadn't been publicised, which was fascinating in itself. But right at the end, um, one of the ladies asked the question in the Q&A section, oh, Brigadier, how did you win your military cross? And he spent about maybe 10 minutes telling the story of this action, um, Mm -hmm. and that was the first time I'd ever heard um, of it. I'd read the citation, but I'd never heard him speak about it. Now, beautifully, uh, 50 years after he was in Borneo, his unit went back there. Those that were remaining, including some people who were in his platoon, um, dwindling numbers, of course. And one really memorable night where Dad, all of these old soldiers that were with Dad that, you know, very sweetly still called him boss and skipper, (laughs) even, you know, 50 plus years later. But also my son, so dad's grandson, were at this table and, you know, we're having some beers and eating some seafood in this outdoor market in Kuching. And everyone in the platoon started talking about it. So I had this really amazing few hours where mm. the soldiers were talking about their recollection of events. Mm. Uh, sadly, in that action, he had two soldiers shot and one died. And uh, in quite a trying moment, um, the two were shot on dusk and there was no way to winch them out. There was no way for a helicopter to land on this ridgeline and they had to carry them down the slope for about eight hours, um, uh, including, uh, oh, by the way, the the enemy that they'd killed. So they carried all of the enemy's bodies and also these two soldiers. And that story in itself, that that little eight eight hours of dad's life, I probably learned Mm. a lot about him, Mm. about um, how compassionate he was and how caring he is, it was really awesome. I mean, you know, to, yeah. to bottle that up into a one-hour session of sitting on a round table with a few, you know, beers and some seafood, it was special. Absolutely, yeah. A couple of things come out of that for us, actually, in terms of the dynamics we've, we've observed with Dad so far. And the first is, uh, you know, this when your dad told that story to the w- women's group, that sort of proves our point about sometimes the most interesting things come out in public. So, you know, we're, we're, mm. that's what we're trying to do with this podcast, actually. We're trying to change the way that dads tell stories by, like, getting them to tell that story to, you know, to a bigger audience and to sort of feel validated. And and so that, yeah, it's interesting that it came out right at that moment for your dad. Um, and then the second thing was also, like, you know, I think it's just so rare that we see our dads out of context, you know, out mm. of their context mm. in the home. Uh, with other people, with other relationships around them, sort of hauling them out of their default father position and, like, you you know, seeing glimpses of that other life that they have, you know, that huge other life that they have. And so, yeah, it's just so valuable to, like, meet your dad's friends. I think that's a basic, (laughs) basic point. But, like, you know, that what your story just confirmed that for us. Although you are reminding me of that episode of The Simpsons where Marge uh, goes on board an aeroplane to discover her dad is a uh, steward. (laughs) (laughs) Not the pilot. (laughs) So it it kind of depends, uh, you know, what what your expectation is versus uh, the reality. Well, it could have been this Stephen Seagull moment, you know, where we're sitting around the round table and I I discover my father was a chef or something. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Exactly. 
on 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 the notion of discoveries about dad ben we understand that your dad passed away a few years back has that event uh caused you to to think more about him or or your relationship with him did it in of itself create some discoveries for you before or after he died yeah to an extent probably nothing sort of revelatory but it it was interesting he um died of lung cancer uh and apparently two packs a day for 30 years will do that to you um and the it was quite a long process, although he was uh, unaffected, relatively you know fit and healthy until the very end game. So it was blessedly quick, um, the the last bits. And I actually managed to get across. Um, Mum called. I, I can't remember the sequencing. You know, say a, a Friday and said, look. You know, he's circling the drain. I think she actually used those words. Um, and so, <laughs> Military so, family? Yeah, he, he was pretty He was pretty pragmatic sure. about it all. Yeah, yeah, um, fair enough. Anyway, uh, and, and I bolted across. I jumped on a plane from Perth, went across the Sunshine Coast where he was, got in at about, I, you know, 11 o'clock at night by the time I'd, I'd transited from Brisbane and kissed mum, went to bed, and then at 4 a.m. or something, the, the he was in palliative care. The hospital phoned up and said, look, you need to get in. So bolted straight there. Um, he was unconscious, non-responsive, still breathing, um, and it would it was less than 10 minutes from us arriving. He, he showed no indication that he knew we were there, but um, I like to tell myself that, that he was hanging on, and sort of less than 10 minutes after that, um, he passed. But the really interesting thing is that um, my brother didn't make it across. Hmm. Um, couldn't be bothered. Wow, well, <laughs> no, that's not true. But, <laughs> but he he was unable to get across. But both of us reflected that it it actually didn't matter at all. There were none of these sort of living years sort of um, mm. bloody lyrics going through our heads. Wish we had have said this. Wish we had have told him. Um, I think by virtue of the fact that he was so expressive uh, with his own love and emotions, um, we reciprocated. And so we'd had the the wonderful opportunity, including in public at weddings and that sort of thing, to, to tell him um, that we are, you know, whatever we are, and, and hopefully it's decent human beings, uh, largely as a result of his example and, and what he taught us and what he showed us and what he instilled in us, which was really the concept that you know if someone can do it then you can do it you know everything is figure outable there's nothing that's beyond you and that was a real um uh, sort of constant theme throughout our childhoods that he left with us so to me um the thing i guess i took away on reflection of his passing was that you don't want to have those things you're saving up for the deathbed and i know mm. this is not mm. revelatory for anyone but um yeah i i liked him uh tell my kids I, I love them and you know I, I think a bit of that sort of stoic philosophy that it, it could be taken away from us at any moment and you don't want to have those the you know that that last magazine in the the buddy basic pouch that you were saving for the deathbed because you, you mm. never know when that's going to come mm, that resonates for us big time as well um yeah, wow. And uh, yeah, we're really happy to hear that you felt like you, you you know, you were in a good position with your dad w- when he passed. Um, and yeah, like, as you say, these things are just so precarious. Do you reckon you guys have a, a greater sense of that precariousness of, of life having, having served in the military or? 
Yeah, I I definitely do. I mean, one of the mm. and so my wife was pregnant with my first child, my my daughter, uh, on my last tour in Afghanistan, and on one of those particular uh, missions, we were uh, tracking some some bad guys. We we ended up. Uh, assaulting the the compound they were in, and you know, gunfight ensued, and and we killed a number of them. And the funny thing about Afghanistan, and there's all sorts of weird stuff that's manifested, and and lots of of damage that's been done, I think, to the the people that that fought there. Um, but as the sun came up, um, you know, we we executed a, a military mission. We'd done it well. Um, we'd had no casualties, but there were dead bad guys and I use that term pretty loosely, um, dead enemy combatants. And, of course, the compound was also their home. So there was mum and the kids um, on this beautiful Afghanistan morning as, as dawn broke, and, you know, it doesn't matter what they'd done. I lose no sleep. You know, I, I am entirely comfortable with what we did in, in terms of a military sense, but no matter any of that, that is still someone's father, and it was this little kid's father, mm. and, um, you know, the, the sight of the... The recently widowed lady and, and orphaned kids, uh, I think, will will stick with me for a while, and that certainly um, reinforced as I was just about to have a child. Um, you know that I guess the universal nature of of uh, parenting, and and for me, the big thing about having kids was it demonstrated that there's consequence to the stuff that I do. I think prior to that, I felt very bulletproof and. I didn't. I didn't feel sort of scared, or or I wasn't worried about something happening to me because I knew my wife would would probably end up with someone better. To tell you the truth, <laughs> <laughs> um, if, if I if I punched out, but suddenly having a child um, reinforced that no shit. There's consequences that are going to impact this this kid in in just the same way that uh, the person we killed there in Afghanistan, his actions had consequences on his family. You know, we, we really take nothing for granted. Uh, I speak for not just Ben and I, but all of our team. Uh, and actually the title of our podcast tells that story, The Unforgiving yeah. 60. You know, fill your unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. Just maximize your time on earth. Milk every single minute. Uh, you know, understand the value of it. And this isn't a peculiar story and not a unique one because I also, my first child, my wife was about 12 weeks pregnant, not even showing when I deployed to Sierra Leone, um, and when I came back, that boy was three weeks old. And in the middle, I'd just come out of the... He was born three and a half, four weeks early. Um, and in the middle, I'd just come out of the, the jungle and, you know, turned on the satellite phone and looked at the email, and there was all of these peculiar messages for me to call urgently this Sydney number. And I was terrified. You know, it was four weeks before the boy was due... I thought, oh dear, something's gone wrong. And um, yeah, when I rang the number, it was a hospital ward and Vicky and our son, Ryan, who'd just been born, were there and he was somewhat premature but in good health. And uh, he'd been alive. He'd been born for 48 hours. In fact, it was 48 hours before he got a name because we'd, we'd never agreed, we'd never really discussed what name we'd give Ryan. We always thought, oh, well, when, you know, you'll come back and then I'll go and have have Ryan have the baby and so yeah that was that was fascinating and I also a bit like Ben's story um, because I knew that my wife was pregnant pretty much for my whole time in Sierra Leone um, I was concerned um, that 
hey, look, if something happened to me, then that boy's going to grow up without a father. And I wrote him a letter um, just in case I was killed on operations on the way that I would expect him to live his life. Um, and I've got to find that letter because I want to give it to him on his 21st. And that is fast approaching. <laughs> Do you are, are you able to slash happy to share any of the broader um, suggestions <laughs> you offered to your son in that? It was really quite simple, uh, Jump Daddy. It, it was all of the things that I recognized in myself were flaws or failures. Um, so it was about... Fucking how long was it? <laughs> 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 Chapter one. <laughs> Chapter one. Patience. <laughs> Chapter two. Tolerance. Yeah, but it was it was a few pages, um, and and of course I knew he wasn't going to read it for many years. But it, it was all those things that I recognised were things that I hadn't done well, and that I wanted him to consider early in life before he got to that age where he could have influence on others. Um, yeah. Yeah, mm. so that that was pretty much the driver of the themes in the um, in the letter, and also to tell him a little bit about you know my life. Fortunately, mm. I didn't have to give him the letter. Bloody hell, this impending death thing really helps communication, doesn't it? It's like you know, just having that uh, that military grim reaper hanging over you. You're, yeah, you're writing letters to your just. Oh my god, it's uh, maybe we should all. Have a stint in the military. They tried that, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jump Daddy couldn't pick a bloody machine gun from a patrol yeah, boat. So, yeah. Yeah. But, but actually, I mean, we, yeah. we've come, or, or myself in particular, I, I love uh, Stoic philosophy. And, mm. you know, they, they're saying exactly the same sort of stuff, this whole memento mori, which, of course, is Latin for doctor. Remember, you will die. Beautiful. <laughs> and premeditatio malorum. Yeah, like a, a premeditation of evils or troubles. Yeah, yeah. yeah think of the worst thing that could happen. Exactly. Which, and I find them really awesome practices. You know, they sound very miserable, um, but they're actually pretty liberating that mm. bad stuff can happen. Life is not fair. We're all going to die, perhaps even later today. Mm. Um, so, mm. yeah, suck the marrow out of it. Carpe diem, all that Am yeah, I getting yeah. points for my Latin, by no, the way? No, you are, I'm, you are, yeah. yeah. It's a very accurate representation of Stoic philosophy, actually. Yeah, there's a, there's a great passage of uh, this Stoic philosopher Epictetus where he says, when you're bending down to kiss your small son, remember... You will die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that beats that. Put him that one up in his bedroom. <laughs> that is excellent. Good night, son. You might not see me in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Or you might. Actually, increasingly, when I bend over, I feel like I'm going to die. Maybe that's just a passage of age. You're starting to, to give up. Yeah, well, the reverse yeah. is also true. I, I, I truly, I'm not really afraid of anything except one thing and that's outliving my children I, that, that idea just mm. absolutely terrifies me mm. Mm. so on the note of children, uh, we always come come back to in a, in a podcast about fatherhood. Do you have more sympathy for the way your own 
dads comported themselves, particularly as parents, the the life lessons they tried to bring to bear, the the way they handled domestic situations. Now that you have both had had a bit of an innings as as dads yourself, what what lessons from from uh, dad's example gone by do you do you cleave to, and what what have you decided? Consciously or not, to, to jettison. Mate, not sympathy. I've got envy. My old man, the end of the day, he'd get a rum, sit on the porch, have a cigarette. <laughs> Buddy, I feel I've got to come back and, you know, help him with the homework and, and do all that sort of stuff. <laughs> so I think the, the dynamic has changed. And uh, I think, you know, in general, um, dads are a lot more hands on these days, which is fantastic. Um, but yeah, certainly as my daughter approaches the, the teenage years and going through all sorts of weird hormonal stuff, as well as finding her place in the world and the family, um, yeah, I, I realized I was probably a bit of an asshole as well, uh, during that phase. So yeah, <laughs> maybe empathy more than sympathy. Ah, right. Yeah. You yeah. see, you see yeah. the teenager through yeah. the parental eyes. Yeah, You're yeah, like, yeah. Oh, I can hear myself. <laughs> hey, yeah, yeah. 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 What about you, Tim? Yeah, I'm. I'm very lucky. I, I I curiously look at my three children and think, geez, none of them are really like me, and isn't that isn't that fortunate? Um, so my my boy is he's a real teacher, and I'm I'm a believer that we often think we can only impart knowledge on our children, and I've recognised with my kids that you learn a lot back, and he has taught me the traits of being a bit patient, being a bit tolerant. I'm an incredible incredibly competitive person and he is not and for ages um, that killed me until I realized he's got it right he wants to play sport for example because he's with his friends I wanted to play sport because I wanted to tackle people <laughs> uh, kick goals um, and you know my middle child who's who's a dancer and on scholarship for dance yeah you know, she she has got everything together fiercely independent and strong and I'm super proud of her and even though she doesn't want to carry dance into her career, it's taught us some some really important lessons of discipline and structure and fitness and flexibility. And the youngest is the energy in the room. Um, you know, she does light up the room when she walks in, usually on her hands, doing the backflip. Um, so yeah, I, I've I've really taken that two way passage of knowledge with the kids, and and I, I love just watching their growth and their little peculiar philosophies and all of the drivers that are important to them that you know weren't around when we were here uh, when we were kids you know the social medias and things um and and i think you know to maybe jump on the back of a, a line that ben used just hopefully we're creating great human beings and if we're just doing that as fathers then what an amazing place this planet will be in the future mm. So as somebody who uh, doesn't believe that happens at all <laughs> in terms of that things get really better, things change uh, mm. from, from my perspective, but, you know, some things get worse, some things get better. It's generally a zero-sum game. That's just my philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, do you think is, is modern fatherhood, it's increasing, it's, it's increasing role in the domestic sphere, it's increasing sort of emotional interest and intelligence, is that going to be compatible with the the job that the future SAS member uh, will still be called on to do? 
Without a doubt. And I think you cannot and you certainly do not have a unit like the SAS or any elite military organisation that's full of sociopaths. In, in fact, quite the opposite. <laughs> Tim mentioned the the importance of family to, to these folk and, and the fact that their family are picking up the slack a lot of times when they are uh, away and doing things in many ways on behalf of the, the country. But it, it does raise a really interesting point that the stuff that these people people are doing is extraordinary and um, it is very different. I think um, there's a, a wonderful book called On Killing by a guy called Dave Grossman, which explores the psychology of legitimate violence, legitimate killing, and talks about how most people, you know, almost everyone needs to park a part of themselves. It's not a natural part of the human condition to be able to kill without remorse. And so, you know, the impact that that has is something that soldiers in conflict have to wrestle with. And it can cause people to, to sort of reflect differently on their own relationships, either positively, like we've hopefully illustrated a bit, uh, sometimes negatively, where, where people start feeling futile about um about you know ideas of love and family and and the world, but I think um, I I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. I don't. You certainly, Jesus. I'd, I would be terrified of a military unit that was comprised of people who didn't have that empathy, mm -hmm. who weren't mm -hmm. good fathers, who weren't good husbands, and you know it is getting anachronistic to talk about the sort of male role in society. And I, I think the the pendulum's corrected in a, in a lot of aspects there. But there is still an element of units like that that act on behalf of others. Now, whether that's a a male or a female thing, but a lot of what is wrapped up in this idea of service is doing a job and potentially sacrificing either aspects of your life or your life itself on behalf of other people, in this case, the country. And I don't think you can do that sort of role without having the kind of empathy and the kind of love that we're increasingly seeing as a hallmark of contemporary fathering. Mm, thank you for that response. Mm, yeah, mm. that that's really, really interesting. And yeah, sort of cuts to the core of what's made this episode really interesting and, and special, I think, for our listeners. I mean, this, um, you know, you've you've given us a real insight into an aspect of fatherhood, a sort of combination of fatherhood with uh, this really kind of challenging career that, um, yeah, it's, it just raises all these fascinating questions. So I reckon we should give these guys a break. What do you reckon, Jump Daddy? Have we grilled them enough? I, I think so. I mean, no doubt you've seen some slightly more kinetic action, if I'm I don't using know. the terminology uh, <laughs> appropriately. Uh, one last thing to put out there, we do often throw a bit of a curveball to people about the notion of dad art, uh, some object of dad's creation or within his possession uh, that, that you kind of treasure and reminds you of the man. Does anything come to mind uh, for either of you? Most definitely for me. My father all through his life uh, would whittle wood. He would carve um, wood and he did some amazing stuff. Um, there's, there's these wonderful images of him. He used to fly up in Papua New Guinea a lot and apparently there's a, a really special breed of close grain hardwood that you can only get there, which I'm sure Aquas don't, the quarantine service don't know that he brought a, a shit tin back to Australia. But um, So there's images of him carving in the jungle and all that sort of stuff. And um, there's one piece 
that he's produced amongst many that that's a favorite of mine and it's a, a sort of a hand giving the the finger and sort of cut off there it sits on the table um and it's this beautiful sort of intricate Strong design message. with all the 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 sort of sinew and the bone and the muscle and the veins of a of a hand but just giving the the finger to life which i, I think is a wonderful sort of legacy that, that he's left us with a finger or a proudly erect penis <laughs> <laughs> way it's brought good luck and fertility to the family <laughs> Well, that's, that's how they that's how they taught safe sex in Sierra Leone when I was there. The the non government organisations, the humanitarians, had big wooden dicks, and they'd take them around to the villages and show the girls how to put condoms on them. Yeah, right. Well, sure some, it wasn't yeah. a big wooden dick. It was some not cultures a big wooden use a banana. Dick, but- yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. no, I don't know what it says about you know the respective uh, uh, viralness of you know in Australia. Yeah, the standard is a sort of uh, supermarket cast off banana. Yeah, uh, whereas <laughs> in Sierra Leone, it probably else, says but... more about the supply of bananas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whatever the case, that's, right. that's an entirely different podcast. Um, <laughs> fantastic. Is is there anything else uh, knocking about in the in the garage in the attic? <laughs> My my father is not a handyman. He is terrible. Uh, I mean, anything to, that he does at home terrifies me. But uh, in a peculiar crossover, when Ben was the commanding officer of the SAS, my father was the honorary colonel, um, a sort of regimental appointment, a bit like the patron. And so he and Ben got to know each other really well in that time. And uh, Ben himself is an incredible artist. And a few years ago, I asked Ben to sketch my father. Um, actually, pictures taken when he was on operations in Borneo and Vietnam. And Ben did that over the top of an old or a series of old military pamphlets, which he took out of uh, you know out of the pamphlet and laid them on on canvas and did these wonderful um, pen sketches. And so, I have them. Uh, hanging in pride of place in my office, um, you know, because it, one, reminds me a lot of my dad, but also of my good mate here. Mm, great. Yeah, it's a, it's uh, economical in that sense. Two thoughts for the price of one. Yeah. <laughs> two for one sentiment. I think he charged me 60 bucks too, the buddy tight one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's probably a perfect note because for today's recordings, uh, dear listeners, this is the conclusion of our Dad to Me episode with uh, Tim and Ben from Unforgiving 60. We'll wrap it up there because very shortly we're going to turn things around and be grilled on their wonderful Reciprocal podcast. grilling. <laughs> we're looking forward to that. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much, guys. Cheers. Thank you. Oh,
Now to the debrief. We relentlessly pursue excellence on Unforgiving 60 and we want your insights and feedback. And indeed, if you know someone who has great insights to share with us that have a practical difference, then get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's unforgiving60.com. We love speaking to anyone who's been walking on the path less travelled and is generally living the life less ordinary. And if you like the podcast, please rate us on iTunes. You can also follow us on social media. Just search at Unforgiving60. That's Unforgiving60. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You know what to do. See you next episode on the Unforgiving 60.